welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be here together. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to tell us, Lord. Help us leave here different than when we came in, praising Jesus and understanding the gospel better. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. We can do better than that. Good morning. All right, so if you're new here, welcome. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. I'm excited that you're here. If you're not new here, welcome back. Um, We've been preaching through the book of Hebrews now. We're just kind of scratching the surface, and we're just going to kind of pick up from where we left off. And so before we start diving into these verses, I just want to tell you where I'm headed. Today, my ultimate goal is that you will understand the gospel maybe a little bit more clearly and get excited about it. Um, The gospel is everything. It's everything. We do a lot of things that maybe we call religious or that um, we we study scripture, we, we dive into theology, we learn doctrine, but the reality is it all comes back to Jesus and the gospel. And oftentimes, life can complicate things. Um, You know, you'll hear me tell you all the time, it really is, what life truly is, is trying to apply the gospel of Jesus in every moment of your life. And these moments that we find ourselves where we're in life and the gospel isn't being applied, that's where Jesus is asking us to embrace the gospel even stronger. And so ultimately, what I want today is The author of Hebrews is saying, look, we need to grasp the gospel, be excited about it, understand it. It should be that thing that like, I don't know, there's energy in it. There's excitement in it. There's this ability to say, no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what's happening, no matter what circumstances are there, no matter what relational issues are going on, Jesus loves me and the gospel is mine in Christ. And that's what I want today. So if you're new here and you're trying to figure out like what is church world and maybe you grew up in in a a different kind of a faith and you're saying, well, I have this perception of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And I want to kind of clear that up a little bit today. And I'm hoping that maybe you'll understand why we come here and sing and why crazy people like us would take a beautiful day like today and spend a couple hours inside instead of being outside in this amazing fall weather. Um, So if you will turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to dive right in here. It begins this way, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. It's interesting how 
The author of Hebrews, after what we went over last week, says, begins this passage with, it is fitting. It is fitting, meaning God was pleased to do what it is that he's going to have Jesus do and do through Christ. It's fitting. And it's fitting because we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament and many passages of Scripture. The author of Hebrews is constantly bringing up the Old Testament because the key to the Old Testament is seeing Jesus in every single passage. The whole point of the Old Testament, we start at the beginning, is we have this moment in history where God has created, placed mankind in perfection, and what we chose was something different. And as a result, we call this sin in Scripture, as a result of our choices, there's this separation between man and God because man can't be in the pres- God can't be in the presence of sin. And the rest of the Old Testament is about God revealing himself to us, helping us understand who he is, and it's this anticipation of the coming of Jesus to say, you need to understand that you can't do it on your own. And we've talked about this already in this a few weeks ago. You can't do it on your own. It's, it's not possible. So God institutes this law, and ultimately, just to simplify this, and I'm simplifying it very, very easy, to say, I'm going to provide you a law that you can't possibly follow, but you need to understand that if you're truly going to be holy on your own, you would have to follow it perfectly. And then we find, well, we can't. So what, it's fitting that God would go, listen, I've promised you that an individual is going to come who is going to solve this problem for you. You can't do it, but it's going to happen. And so it's fitting that we talk about this. It's fitting that the Lord would do this. So he says, for it is fitting that he for whom by whom all things exist. Who's doing this? It's the creator of the world. We talked about this. It's two weeks ago that God created all things, that he is the sustainer of all things, that that everything that's been created is ultimately for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus, that it's all for him. When we're talking about who is it that, that is saying this is fitting, it's the creator of the universe, the individual who just spoke everything into existence. The one who knows all, is sovereign. All of these things, it's almost like this is a review. He's going back to everything that we've talked about thus far in bringing many sons to glory. I get overwhelmed often with this idea that God would want anything to do with me. Like when you process everything I've just said and you go back and you think of everything that we've studied in Hebrews, what Pastor Matt talked about last week, and you think, wow, the creator of the world has some sort of desire that I can't possibly grasp to want to commune with me. Why? Like we elevate ourselves oftentimes to think that we're so great, right? And I've shared this before. It's like, even as Christ followers, we can be like, Lord, did you just see what I did for you? So awesome. And you process through, it would be so easy to think back and say, okay, 12 years ago, a group of individuals moved from California to Boston to attempt to plant a church. And in 12 years, there's been five coffee houses open that are there to present the gospel and build relationships with people and three churches planted. And it would be so easy 
to sit back and go, Lord, I know that this is you, but man, you're so lucky I came to Boston. You're so lucky that this team is willing to sacrifice for you. But the reality is there's nothing, if, if God doesn't show up, nothing happens. It has nothing to do with us. And when you really begin to process through, like even the good that we've done, even the good that you've done, and you realize that in comparison to the creator of the world, it's nothing. We need to understand this. Sometimes I feel like even the church thinks that God owes us something. And he owes us nothing. So why would he want to commune with us? And I know that's not everyone. Some of you suffer from this thing where you go, I am so unworthy. Kevin, if I told you the story of my life, like you don't even know if you'd want me to walk into this building. Like I, I don't even know that I should be communing with other people because it just, it, there's so much that has happened and I have such a past and such a, and it prevents you from really seeing yourself as the beautifully created being that you are. And I think in that context, we kind of sit back and say, man, from a negative perspective, not, it goes past, not only do I not understand why a holy God would want anything to do with me, but I'm, I'm so depraved and I'm so messed up and I have such a past that there's absolutely no hope for me whatsoever. And what I've found is there's these moments for most people where you're going to have both of these emotions even potentially working at the same time. But he says, I'm bringing many sons to glory. The gospel is there for all. It impacts everyone. Even those who aren't believers are impacted by the gospel in so many ways. Scripture talks about how God shines the sun on those who love him and those who don't, right? But the church exists to be a blessing to those that we live around. It provides opportunity for us to display the love of Jesus in ways that most people don't get to see. It's, we're, we're intended to be a blessing to everyone, and in doing so, the gospel becomes impactful for everyone throughout the world if the church is doing what it's supposed to do. These messed up individuals, you know, I, I, you'll often hear me say things like, the church is amazing, the church is special, the church is, but it, all it is is a, a group of individuals coming together saying we, agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That He is the only way to salvation. And there's this unity that is supposed to exist no matter where you come from, what socioeconomic background you come from, what nation you come from, what race you come from, what your religious background is, whatever sins you've been participating in the past, where we come together in unity because the gospel is so big. It transcends everything. 
many sons are coming to, to glory, meaning Jesus is going to save many. There's so many individuals, and not one of them is worthy, and not one of them can earn it, and not one of them should ever get it, which places us all in the exact same spot. says you should make the founder of their salvation perfect through their suffering. This word founder, I love this word. It's a word that I really dove into just to try to figure out what does this mean? Because it sounds weird. The founder of our salvation. If you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and we look at what is Christianity and what does it mean, we say, okay, well, Jesus is the founder. He's the, he's the head of the church. He's the one that the gospel was brought through. He's the one that has done it all. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. This word founder, the best word I can come up with is he's the pioneer. He's the one that blazed the trail. And we think, well, pioneers. And when I think pioneer, the thing that hits me the most, because I'm marking, right, is I picture people like getting in covered wagons and saying, we're gonna blaze a trail that hasn't been blazed before and we are going to create a path from one area of the country and try to expand the country. So you think like Lewis and Clark or whoever it is from your history lesson, right? Where you just go, wow, this is amazing. These people, they, they just, they were unsatisfied with what they were at. They had this pioneering heart to wanna do something new and see something different. And so they blazed this trail, right? My grandma actually was part of this Dust Bowl, and I heard stories about her being in a covered wagon, her, or her grandparents, whatever, coming across this land from Oklahoma to California, and the stories that went on and the hardships that went on, and they weren't even the first, right? Like if you think of a, of a pioneer, you think of them, there's no road, they're just, they're literally blazing a trail. So I don't know if anybody likes to snow ski or a ride, right? I love to ski, and one of the things I really enjoy doing is trying to blaze a new trail. And it's never new because it's on a ski resort, so it's obviously like good, right? But they have these like groom paths, and I'm like, that's, that's cool. But what I love to do is get off into the trees and just cut my own path, right? I love that. You never know what you're going to encounter. You never need, it's like, okay, here comes a tree and there's a tree there and I'm trying to calculate if I jump here, it's gonna do this and everything's happening in split second. That's what you think of when you think of a pioneer. It's this individual who's actually building a, a road or a bridge that never existed before. And then the next person is able to follow that road. They might make it, you know, okay, we're gonna pack this down a little bit more so it's a little bit easier. And over time, when you think of roads being developed, then eventually it gets paved. Or if we're sticking with the, the skiing analogy, the, the slope gets groomed. And if enough people follow the same trail, then eventually the ski resort's gonna go, let's make that an official trail. That's what Jesus did. I mean, in very simplistic lingo, he, he, there's this problem where God desires to be with us for whatever reason, and he says, you can't do it on your own, and you can't be holy on your own, and therefore, Jesus comes, and he's going to blaze this trail. He's the pioneer. He's the one that says, I'm going to create this road that you're going to be able to walk between yourself and your creator. And you can't create it. 
You, you can't do it. So Jesus is the pioneer. He becomes this founder of our salvation. It says, founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. If you study scripture very often or you get into any theological debate, so I kind of geek out on theology, one of the things that people will often say who maybe don't understand the scriptures but are studied in it, they'll say things like, well, this verse, it, it's showing that Jesus wasn't perfect until he suffered. And we say, well, that's not actually what it's saying. Jesus was perfect. He, he, he lived the life that we were supposed to live. Scripture defines him as the second Adam, the first Adam who represented all of us blew it. The second Adam, Jesus, who also is going to represent us, didn't blow it. He lived the life that we were supposed to. He, he followed the law perfectly. He was holy. But not only that, but he's God in the flesh. So even in his character, he cannot sin. So what is this verse talking about? If he was already perfect, then how does he perfect the salvation? Well, the salvation wasn't perfected until Jesus actually suffered. The road wasn't laid until Jesus actually suffered. So it wasn't that he wasn't perfect, but salvation wasn't perfect until Jesus did what he did. He had to suffer. He, he had to live the life that we were supposed to live, and then he had to die the death that we deserve, and then he had to raise three days later conquering sin, Satan, and death forever so that that road was laid. And when he did, the path of salvation was perfect. And it says that he did it through suffering. We don't like suffering. I don't. Maybe you do. If you do, that's weird. Um, but, you know, I, whatever. Everybody has their thing, right? I don't love to suffer. I, in fact, as, as a man who doesn't love to suffer, and as a, a human being, because most of us don't want to suffer, we do everything that we possibly can to avoid suffering. Like, if you see two paths and you're like, that path's gonna require a lot of suffering, and this path isn't, and I feel like if I walk down either path, I'm gonna make it to the same spot, which one are you gonna pick, right? So I think of like long distance athletes, iron men, iron women, whatever, right? Like they travel a certain distance. Now I can travel that same distance in a car and a boat. Right? and not suffer. But their job, what they're attempting to do is saying, I'm going to beat my body into submission, I'm going to train, I'm going to endure, and I'm gonna put myself in a position to suffer even though I could go the same distance and a very easy path. Suffering is something that just seems to be anti-human. We just, we don't love it. In the gospel, it says that his, he perfects this salvation through suffering. And when we look at the way that Jesus suffered, he begins his suffering, in my opinion, at least, because I'm human and that's all I've got, by first leaving where we're attempting to get to and coming here and becoming man. 
taking on flesh, putting himself in a position where he's going to put this veil in front of him where not everybody sees that he's actually creator God. He humbles himself, it says. Humility can be a form of suffering. It's, he came. (laughs) Why would anybody desire to come to a sin-cursed world? Then he lives this life that people don't understand. He, it's fascinating to think that as we define Jesus oftentimes as well, he was so loving to people and he was so kind and presented truth. And if you think like, I, I, you know, I've mentioned this a lot, like we have this picture oftentimes of Jesus in the church as he's like, well, it depends on what country you're coming from, but like I'll go into churches and they'll see like stained glass of Jesus and he's this white guy with long hair and blue eyes sitting around a bunch of sheep, <laughs> right? Like he's this almost like spiritual guru that we just kind of lift up and go, oh, look at how great Jesus was. He healed people. He, he spoke these amazing words. He did all of these really cool things. And then there's these moments that we get confused. Things like where he makes a whip and he goes in and turns over tables in the temple and starts yelling at people or calling people names. And he actually does that. We just kind of set that aside and say, well, we know that he was this good guy. But I want you to think through this for a second. The guy that we claim and who claims to be perfect in every single way comes to the world and presents truth and the world's response is he has to die. The the culture that Jesus lived in didn't look at Jesus and go, oh, he's so nice. He's so kind. He's healing people. They were, he was constantly under attack. He was constantly being challenged by the religious elite. We have scripture passages where the Pharisees are literally saying, we set a trap for Jesus. We have historical evidence that Jesus was killed on a cross, which was the most horrific way to die that the Romans could come up with. We have relegated Jesus in our mind down to this like really nice guy. Even like unbelievers will often say, well, yeah, I I like Jesus. He seemed like a cool dude. But when you look back in history, what he did was appalling to the world that was around him. Scripture tells us that when light comes, darkness trembles. That the creatures of darkness do not enjoy the light. Like think of those moments when you're in a dark room and somebody comes on and switches on the light and you're like, ugh, right? And all you want is for that light to go off because it's just burning your eyes. That analogy is perfect for us to understand what Jesus was like in the culture that he came in. He burned people's eyes. Why? Because they were in utter darkness. It was why when Jesus often gave teachings, people would literally go, I, I can't follow that. So we have passages of Scripture that go, I gotta turn away. Like it, it says they stopped following Jesus at that moment. Why? Because the light was so painful. 
Jesus was almost like a mirror, right? Where it wasn't, it wasn't like Harry Potter, Mirror of Error said, we're showing you what you desired most, right? It was like a mirror that was showing you your heart. But not the heart that you desire, the heart that really existed. Think of the person that you've, I, we all have these people, what you've been around and you're like, this is like, if there's a perfect person in my life, this is that person. They're not, but we, we elevate them to that, right? Where it's like, man, everything they do works and they're good looking and every mo- everything they say is kind and they're just, everybody likes them and you just go, ugh, right? There's a, why do we do that? Or, you know, you think like, why do we hate winners? Because society ultimately hates winners, right? You don't, the Patriots, <laughs> right? Patriots won a long time, and now they're losing, and the rest of the country is going, yes, finally, right? Everybody hates a winner. There's this sin-cursed thing in us where we're just going, I want, I, I, I want to pretend like I love people, but I really want to see their demise. And if we're honest, we get this, right? So it's like, oh, I love this person, but I have this maybe jealousy in me or this desire to be more like them or whatever it is, or I wish I was like them. And so really in the back of my mind, I'm just sitting back and going, yeah, I love you, fail, right? The most perfect being that has ever existed comes to a sin-cursed world, lives a perfect life, And the end result is you have to die because the light that you bring hurts too much. It's too real. Jesus, can't we just all get along? Can't you just come and present the message that everybody wants to hear? Can't you just tell us that we're actually doing okay? Like, I know this is hard, but but can't you just say, like, you're doing the best you can. So... Just keep going. See, that's not what Jesus said. He constantly came and said, you're dirty, rotten sinners. You're an absolute mess. You're hopeless. You're destitute for eternity apart from your creator. You're, you're, you're destined for an eternity apart from your creator. But... I'm here to blaze a path. I'm here to create a road. I'm here to do what you can't do. He suffers in coming, he suffers in living, and then he suffers obviously in his death, and I won't go through the details of that because we do it every year, but it's something that we should constantly be thinking about that I have this picture in my head it, every time I think of, an, of this hammer hitting this nail into Jesus' hands, I, I, I process this idea that that really should have been me. And it requires us to do that. It requires us to understand that the suffering that Jesus went through is the suffering that I deserve. It's the suffering that you deserve. In fact, belief in the gospel Belief in who Jesus is begins with understanding our own depravity and our own end. We have to get to a place where we say, I don't deserve it, I can't get there, and I can't create my own road. 
As much as society wants to teach me that, as much as internally I want that to be the case, it's not possible. He's the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This idea of one source is beautiful. It's it brings up, the, the way it's written is it brings up images of a family. It's, it's a bunch of different people coming together in unity. It's a bunch of people coming together beyond even unity. It's, it's coming together as a family. It's coming together and saying, we're one because we're from the same source. So there's a whole lot of family imagery in what's being portrayed here. That what Jesus, when he came and he pioneered, what he was actually pioneering was a new family. An opportunity. uh, An ability for mankind not to just be saved, but to actually be adopted, as the Scripture refers to it. Where you say, okay, I was on my own. I was trying to do this on my own. I've got all of this culture around me that's pressuring me to do it on my own. I'm trying to figure this out. I I don't feel worthy because I'm not. I I don't have an accurate perception of myself. I forget that I'm created in God's image. All of the things that we place, the sin-cursed heart places on us, all the things that culture places on us that helps us to mislabel ourselves, to misunderstand who we truly are, all of those things, right? It's it's all that pressure, all that weight, and it's going, it's not just a fix of that. You're not just, it's not just taking this heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. It's doing that and adding something more. It's bringing you into this place that you belong in a culture that you belong in a family that you belong. You know, nobody likes to be alone. Even those of you that say you do, you don't. I know we could talk about introverts and extroverts. I get it. Everybody's a different personality. But you weren't, the reason I can say you don't love to be alone is because you weren't created to be alone. You were created to be in fellowship. You were created to be in family. Most of us probably come from messed up families. If you don't, man, it's awesome. What a gift. Right? I come from a messed up family. They're so broken. And it hurts. It hurts because I know it's not right. It hurts because what I was born into as a kid, you go, this isn't supposed to break. It's supposed to stay here. It's supposed to provide me stability and safety and comfort. I'm supposed to be able to lean on these individuals that brought me into this, onto this planet. And, and so when family hurts you, it hurts. When family breaks, it's hard. And Jesus says, this isn't just about restoring your soul. It's about restoring a family. It's about bringing you into something where we know that you've experienced so much brokenness, but you come into something that can never be broken. 
And you go, well, what about church hurt and all this stuff? And it doesn't mean we don't hurt each other. In fact, I'm going to go on record to say this. The people I hurt the most are my family. The people I hurt the most are the people that I'm closest to. Why? Because they care. They matter. They know me. We, family, we still live in sin-cursed bodies in a sin-cursed world. But unlike the families that over time, as you hurt each other, we have this ability to just go, ah, I'm done. This thing's broken. I'm out. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you do. You're not out of the family. It's, you're still unified together. You're still going, you're still there. You, you can always come back. It never leaves. This is why the gospel becomes the most it's the most beautiful thing that restores all relationships. Because no matter how much you disagree politically, or how much you disagree socially, or culturally, or what your background is, or what your socioeconomic level are, the family isn't grounded in all of that superficial stuff. It's grounded in something that never breaks. It's why when you meet a fellow Christ follower that you don't know, there's this bond. And you should feel that. It's like, I was talking to, I was working in the coffee house yesterday, and I don't know why, but the Lord just had so many conversations lined up for us yesterday. It was crazy. I have so many stories about yesterday. Maybe it was the Baptists that were here, right? But... It was just nuts. And so I'm having this conversation with this girl and she's being a little tentative and questions that she's asking and I'm being a little, I'm trying to be very wise in the way that I'm answering things. And we're, it's like we're doing this little dance, right? And it's like, ah, I've never met you before so I wanna make sure we're building a relationship and I don't wanna push you away. And she's trying to dig deeper and I'm like, I gotta be slow with this. And then finally I just go, do you know Jesus? And she said, yes. And we're like, yes. <laughs> Now, just ask anything you want, because I'll just answer anything, right? Like, forget the illusion. Like, let's just break through. And she's like, there's this moment where you go, you're a, you're a Christ follower? You know Jesus? Like, it's not just, oh, wow, we have this thing in common. I'm looking at this person. I'm going, this is my sister. Like, one day, when Jesus comes back, or we both die, I will see her in eternity forever. We are one family. There's nothing more beautiful than that. There's nothing more beautiful than coming across somebody you've never met before and going, we have the most important thing in common. Like, I don't know who you are and I don't know what your background is and I don't know what you've suffered with, but I do know that we're part of the same family. That's so cool. That's what Jesus pioneered. He pioneered the ability for us to relate to each other in that component. This, this is why we need each other. This is why when you like, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, you don't understand the gospel. Because what's the church? Group of believers. What's really the church? Your family. 
Well, I don't like my family. You know that's your eternity, right? I have this theory, and this is not in scripture, okay? It's just a theory, because I think God has a sense of humor. I do. And I think that the odds that you're going to be sitting in this great banquet with Jesus at the head, I think you're gonna probably be sitting to that person, next to the person that you disdained the most who was also a believer. Like, we've lots of weddings coming up, right? And we've done some weddings, they're all fun. I, I can't imagine trying to do a seating chart, right? Because you realize as human beings, this is how we have to do seating charts. Oh, that person doesn't get along with that person. And I can't put this here, and it's just constant. You're constantly, like I've watched this process happen. You're like, right? Ooh. <laughs> That's not a good mix. And you know what Jesus is going to say? Your family. And you know what the seating chart's going to be? What are you going to complain about now? Right? Your family. We love the church. Is the church perfect? No. Do we blow it? Yes. Do we hurt each other? Yes. But you stay together because your family. You stay together because the only thing that matters in this world is Jesus. So you lean into that. It's why you can disagree on other things, but if you have that in common, you can love. And you can encourage. And you can support. It's why I defend so much. I mean, don't mess with my family. Right? This is what Jesus has pioneered. And we get to this last section and this is where the rubber meets the road. Like this, what I want you to understand is this road that Jesus pioneered, this is, this is what it means to him. And what ends up happening in these next section is, it's very quick, but He's basically going to quote some passages in the old scripture, and he does this very poetically. And I'm glad the Holy Spirit did this because I could, we as regular human beings could never take license to do something like this. But the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Holy Scripture, does something very unique here that I want you to see. Let me read it first. It says, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know that in Christ, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. You see, that's so important for us to grasp. When you, you, you've professed Jesus as Lord and Savior and you're living out your life as a Christ follower and you blow it, Jesus doesn't go, ugh. You're not like the, you're not the weird cousin. You know what I'm saying, right? Because we all have one. And if you don't know who it is, it's you. <laughs> you're not the weird cousin. You're a brother or sister of Jesus. There's a bond there.
That's weird. <laughs> There's a bond there. You're not in this situation where you're living in this fear of going, what's going to get me kicked out of the family? Or what did I do where Jesus goes, oh, I'm so ashamed of this person. Like, yeah, they're my weird cousin and I know their family, but I just, we keep them over here, right? It's not that. He's not ashamed. And to prove that he's not ashamed, the author's going to give us some things from the Old Testament here to actually help us understand how Jesus defines us. And so this is weird. There's, there's kind of a, there's moments in Scripture where we look at a passage and there's potentially like two simultaneous things happening, happening together. And the author of Hebrews is going to do this here. So he says, he's not ashamed to call you brothers, saying what? This is Jesus saying. He's attributing these things to Jesus, even though Jesus didn't necessarily say them outside of, if we go theologically, the Holy Spirit spoke them to the author. I will tell you your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. There's two things happening here. So the author of Hebrews is saying this. If you go back, look at the context. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Who is not ashamed? That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call you family. Saying, who's saying? Jesus. He's attributing this to Jesus. So Jesus is saying this about you. The second meaning is going to come in here to play in a second. What is Jesus saying about you? I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is saying that about you. I'm not ashamed of you. In fact, I'm going to brag about you. That's my brother. That's my sister. It says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and advocates for us. What does that mean? It means a lot of different things, right? But one of the things that it means is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and if you're in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, if you're a born-again believer, if you're in the family of God, if you've walked this path that Jesus has pioneered, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, you've been adopted into the family, that when you blow it and the accuser comes, Jesus goes, nope, that's my family. And I already paid for that. But they, did you see what they, it's been paid for. That's mine. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's family. Nothing excommunicates family. Jesus is saying that about you. That should be overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Not only is he desire to have a relationship with you in Christ, adopt you into family, but then he talks this way about you.
What's the other component of this? I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. This is a quote from Psalm 22. And it does talk about the suffering of Jesus, but it's also referring to the fact that Jesus suffers. The family will also do these things to Jesus. Jesus, because it's family, it's, it's united. He, he sings your praises. He adores you. He adores you. It's why I'm, I have to remind myself of, of moments like this, especially like when I was a kid and I knew I did something wrong and you didn't want your dad to find out, or your mom to find out, so you hid it, right? And there was almost like this like separation and oftentimes, I think we can do that with Jesus, too. It's like, I can't believe I did this. He's going to be so disappointed in me. And so my response from a human perspective is I'm going to pull back and pull out and pull away. We have passages of Scripture. Talk, King David's the perfect example. He sends, and he's like, I'm going to come over here and just throw a pity party. Right? And we have Psalms where David's talking about what's going on in his body physically, emotionally, spiritually as he's pulled away. And then we have Psalms as he comes back and he realizes that these two years of his life were wasted. Like, why did I do that? We do that because we misunderstand how Jesus perceives us as family. Instead of running to the help and the one that will restore us and the one that will welcome us in and the one that will hold us and the one that will help us get through and, and help us repent and put us on a new path and, and help us get sanctified through that, we push that person away, just like we do to our earthly parents. Because we think there's going to be this shame in it. And Jesus is like, don't do that. I'm the pioneer. I'm the author. I'm the founder. I'm the one that cares about you. Stop running from me even when you blow it. When you blow it, come closer. Amen. It's different. It, it supersedes everything that we think of naturally. But it's what's supposed to happen. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus is saying this about you. He includes himself with you. Me and the children God has given me. Me and my family. Me and this church. Me and these individuals. Jesus is saying that about you. If you know him. If you're adopted in. And then we also say the same thing me and my family. Jesus is the head. Elder brother. Big brother. Cares about us. But family. We, Jesus says that about us so we can say it about each other. It, and then all these lessons come from this. Well, if Jesus is willing to forgive me, then I should be willing to forgive others in my family. If Jesus is willing to love me, then I love others in my family. If, if Jesus is willing to come alongside in times of hurt, me, then, then I need in my family to come alongside those who are hurting. If Jesus is willing to pioneer a path for others to join the family, then I need to use that path 
to see others by his grace come into the family. It's the justification for everything we do as a family, as a unit on mission. It's everything. Why? Because Jesus did it first. So when he says, you know what? I've created you as a pioneer and I want you to go to this part of the world and do something that's never been done before for the gospel, you're doing it out of the motivation that Jesus has already done it. And he's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done. And when he says, I'm asking you to go talk to your neighbor and show them love, he's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done because that's what the family of Jesus does. Why? Because we emulate our big brother. He did it first. The passage of Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. He showed us the love first, we love him, and then we join this family. And families have characteristics, right? And we just think of family characteristics. You know some families, like think of famous families. They're political, maybe. They're rich. They're awful. <laughs> It's a bunch of criminals. Legacies of families tend to just keep going and there's this characteristic of every family, your family, your little immediate family, whatever that looks like has characteristics. We call ourselves Team Scott. And if some, you go to somebody that knows this really well and they're like, tell us about Team Scott, they're gonna tell you all the good things and all the bad things, but those are the characteristics of Team Scott, right? Team love, whatever. The family of God has characteristics. What are the characteristics of the family of God? Family comes first. Jesus is the head. We attempt to be sanctified in the Holy Spirit that lives in us to emulate Christ. We follow the commands of Jesus. We stick together regardless. We love regardless. We speak truth regardless. We live our lives with the gospel at the forefront of everything that we do. We work in Christ, we play in Christ, we fellowship in Christ. When we sin, we repent. There's characteristics of the family. If you're here today and you're a Christ follower, what I really want you to grasp is this excitement of understanding that whatever you've made it and whatever you think it is and whatever you've experienced, this is actually what it is. It's a privilege to be called the family of God. It's a privilege to get to walk with our older brother Jesus. It's a privilege that no matter what happens or what we do or how we behave or what mistakes we made or how we sin, that there's always an opportunity to repent and be restored. You can't be removed from the family once you're in. Why? Because big brother Jesus pioneered the path and it can't be undone. It, this is what we celebrate as Christ followers. It's why when a team of five individuals that we know a little bit come from Montgomery, Alabama to a place like Boston, and, and they're like, we wanna work, we wanna work, we wanna work, put us in, put us in, coach, put us in, put us in, put us in, and I'm like, you know what I really want? I want you to just be part of the family. 
So I don't want to create something special for you to do. I just, this is what our family does. And it fits. Why? Because it's the same family. They talk a little different. (laughs) And their church does things a little bit different. It's family. It's family. It's beautiful. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I need you to hear this. You're not in God's family. I love you enough to tell you, right now, you are on your own. And if you're really listening, you know it. You feel it. The only way to become part of God's family is through Jesus, the one that pioneered it. You can continue to try to craft your own path. You can continue to try to buy into the lies that the world will tell you. You can continue to try to be a good person. But you can never be good enough. You will never earn it. You will never be worthy. Because only Jesus is. But he has paved a path for you. And so, I'll be brutally honest with you to tell you, as much as the family of God celebrates when we take communion, you can't. But I want you to. I want you to be able to celebrate. I want you to be part of the family. I want you to walk that path. I want you to see Jesus for who he truly is. I want you to personalize that so you join the family and become adopted. And you can do that. So what, what do you do? And as we participate in communion, I don't want you to do something religious and be like, oh, well, now God's happy with me. No, he's not. You're apart from him. Instead, if you're feeling like I need to respond to something, I want to be part of this family, you, you just have to transfer your trust in everything that you've been doing and put it all on Jesus. All of it. It's putting all of your faith and trust in what he's done and not what you're doing. And you can do that. So here's, here's what you can do. You can come find me if you like. That's fine. And we could put Pastor Matt over here and that's fine too. And you, you're welcome to do that. But here's the deal. I, this is better. This is family. You can turn to the person next to you and say, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, I have some questions. Can we go get a cup of coffee? If they're truly part of the family, they can tell you how it happens. So do that. Ask the questions. Ask somebody in the family. For the rest of us, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing. I I don't know if this is like a fresh perspective on the gospel for you, but what I would say is one of the things we need to do is understand what has been paid for our salvation and celebrate the fact that we're part. Celebrate the fact that we're family. And one of the ways we're reminded of that is through communion. We take communion here every Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to respond. We ran out of communion cups. We have these terrible little things. So take the bitter stuff and praise God for it. 
because what it represents is beautiful. So the band's gonna come up, we're gonna sing a couple of songs. Communion elements are here. You're welcome to partake whenever you feel ready. If you're, the only thing I would ask is if you don't know Jesus personally, please don't partake. I don't want you leaving here with a false hope. Instead, talk to somebody. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, as Christ followers, I think we often forget what we truly are a part of. Lord, I ask that you would give us the grace to really see the family that we're in, the cost that Jesus paid, the beauty of the unity that we have in Christ, the beauty of the mission that we're given. And Lord, I pray for anyone in our family that is discouraged or feeling like they're not a part. Lord, that's not of you. So I ask that you would draw us even closer together. That what the world sees is this Christ-following family would be so overwhelmingly contagious that they desire to ask questions and, and be a part. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to do this on our own. We thank you for Jesus and his willingness to pioneer for us. We thank you that he solved the problem. And we thank you that it's not just a problem solved, but it's a, a family built. Lord, remind us of that. May we sing praises to you because of it. And Lord, lastly, I just ask there's anyone in this room right now who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus, that you would remove that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That you would give them the courage and the boldness to ask the questions that need to be asked, Lord, and that ultimately you would bring them to faith in Christ, that we might call them family. Lord, thank you for loving us in spite of who we are and what we've done. May we see you for who you truly are. Thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.